Welcome to Puritans Read, reading aloud great Puritan works, authors, and biographies. Today, episode two of The Wiles of Satan, Brother Spursto is expounding in this whole book on this uh, one verse, 2 Corinthians 2.11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Chapter 3. The Great Ability of Satan to Tempt. I shall offer the following six demonstrations to evidence the great ability of Satan to tempt. Ever since he left his own station, he has never ceased to malign ours and has become, by both office and practice, a tempter, so that he might draw man from his happiness into the same irreparable and cursed condition as himself. Demonstration 1. In his nature, he is both a spiritual and an intellectual essence, in each of which respects. His advantage over man is very great, who, in the most refined and supreme part of his being, falls as far short of an angel as a small, glittering spark does a fair and well-polished diamond, or as a twinkling star does of a refulgent sun. An angel, said Bellarmine, is a most perfect and spiritual substance, but the soul is a spirit imperfectly and by halves. It has the form of an earthly body and part of a man who is a middle kind of creature and has something in common with angels above him and with beasts which are below him. As a spirit, therefore, Satan can convey himself and his suggestions to both the understanding and the will in a more intimate and efficacious manner than any human agent possibly can. For when one man becomes a tempter to another, he uses the mediation of the outward senses to which he can only apply and communicate the object but he cannot, by any physical or natural power, gain an immediate access to the internal faculties of the soul and lodge the temptation, as Joseph's steward hid the cup in Benjamin's sack without his knowledge. But such is the power of this infernal angel that, though he is totally barred from all kinds of intercourse with the immediate and imminent operations of the reasonable soul, and can no more look into the thoughts and musings of the heart than a common eye can pry into the bowels of the earth and describe those numerous conceptions with which it travels to its womb, yet he can as easily get into the fancy, which is next to that mysterious chamber of the soul, which to God alone is all light, and to every created power all darkness, as any man can enter into room that is possessed of a key that gives him free admittance. And he can make use of all those species and signatures of things 
that are lodged in it, disposing and ordering them as a painter does his many colors that lie confusedly before him in their various shades to express the portraiture and image of that person whom he would delineate by them. <coughs> he can both continue and reiterate the presentation of the objects which he offers to the fancy as often and as long as it pleases him. Now, how much such a power, when permitted by God, can further a compliance in the soul to all those suggestions which the father of lies secretly instills, we may easily conjecture, if we do but a little consider, what the natural use of the fancy is to both the understanding and the will. To the understanding, it is a prompt assistant in matter of invention to supply it with a variety of objects whereon to work. And from the quickness of its operation, the multiplicity, levity, and volubility of the thoughts chiefly arise which, when they become excessive through an undue and overhasty obtrusion of the species, are to be deemed in both natural and moral things as a disease and distemper of the faculty rather than a power or perfection. In regard that the worth of some objects justly requires an immolation and fixed stay of the thoughts upon them. To the will, its office is to elicit and excite its desires towards some convenient and pleasing object in which, for the most part, it is so successful that oftentimes plausible fancies do more take and sway with the will than naughty and severe arguments. There is a natural aptness in men to be moved by such inducements as carry in them more beauty to entice than force of reason to compel. The freedom of the will being seemingly less infringed in the one than in the other. Therefore Satan, by reason of the spirituality of his being, can have such a free access unto the fancy and can improve all the images and representations of things that are in it to insinuate himself and his serpentine suggestions to both the understanding and will so inwardly that he is said to put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. John 13.2 To fill the heart of Ananias to lie to the Holy Ghost. Acts 5.3 So powerful is he that the scripture uses the same word to express the working of Satan in the children of disobedience, Ephesians 2.3, by which it sets forth the efficacious and powerful working of God in believers, Philippians 2.13. How can it be otherwise but that he must be a powerful and prevailing adversary? Yet, 
This difference must be put between the operations of the one and the other, that the Spirit of God works by divine infusions of grace, which effectually sway the soul to an assent or consent. Satan, only by moral persuasions, which may be powerful to solicit, but not to constrain. And in this respect, he is, as Jerome truly calls him, a feeble and weak enemy who can only overcome him who yields, not him who resists, and hurts him who puts his weapons into his hand, not him who keeps them in his own. Second, as Satan is a spiritual being, he is also an intellectual being, and by the same law of creation by which he excels man in the one, he far outstrips him in the other. Now, in the understanding of Adam, there was such an inbred force and power that when God brought all the creatures to him as their Lord to see what he would name them, Genesis 2.19, in giving the creatures their names, Adam characterized their nature. He did not give it to them at random, as the Socinians wickedly imagine, who make him little above the stature of a child in knowledge. That being true, how much more must the angelic nature be endowed with innate and implanted species of things that are more universal and extensive unto several objects? It being the most supreme in the hierarchy of intelligent creatures, for whose sake all natural objects were made, that they might be known and discerned by them. True, Satan, by his voluntary defection from God, has lost that glorious robe of holiness that made him a peer of heaven and dignified him with the title of a son of God. He has also, I conceive, impaired his natural abilities so that he has become in power, wisdom, and knowledge inferior to those glorious inhabitants of the sacred palace who have kept their first estate and not departed from that purity that is as ancient as their being. For why should not the sin of angels operate as strongly upon them as the lapse and disobedience of man did upon him, whose spiritual parts were thereby wholly destroyed and his natural parts sorely maimed. But though his fall has debased his being, yet it has not totally changed it. He still has the nature, though not the perfection, of an angel. And though he is inferior to them, whose equal originally he was in all kind of endowments, yet he still retains so great a superiority over the elementary, sensitive, and intellectual part of the world that he is not only dreaded for his power, which sometimes he puts forth in wonderful effects, but is also adored for his wisdom and knowledge as a god by many nations. It is observable that Beelzebub in Second Kings 1-2 is called 
the god of Ekron, and in Luke 11.15 is termed the prince of devils. In the kingdom of sin and darkness, he is a god. But in the kingdom of grace, he is a devil. And more ghastly than hell itself by his sinful deformity. And though he seldom or never appears in that dress, but palliates and gilds his suggestions. They sometimes seem to be rather lapses from heaven than smoke rising from the bottomless pit, and to savor more of angelical purity than diabolical filthiness. Yet is he not therefore to be any less observed by us? We ought rather to be all the more watchful since we have such a serpent to deal with that can hide his deadly poison with a beautiful and shining skin. And if the ancient church, while Augustine was a Manichaean and a busy wrangler against them, was wont to pray, Lord, deliver us from Augustine's subtlety and reasonings. How much more have believers need to make the same prayer and often to reiterate it, Lord, deliver us from the arts and fallacies of Satan, whose malice is great, whose abilities are matchless, and which transcend the line of human wisdom when drawn out to the utmost period of its extension. That was episode two of The Wiles of Satan by William Spurstow.